Excellent. Thank you, and welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, Human Rights Foundation's conversation series, where we expose dictators, discuss global human rights issues, and brainstorm how to put human rights at the top of the global agenda. I'm Jenny Wang, and I am the manager of Asia Programs and Policy here at the Human Rights Foundation. As a brief overview, HRF is an international, nonpartisan, nonprofit organization based in New York City, and we are dedicated to promoting and protecting human rights in countries under authoritarian rule. HRF's initiatives fall under three main pillars: one, amplifying activist voices. Two, connecting activists with individuals from various industries, and three, publishing reports, letters, and op-eds to inform the public about the importance of human rights. Today's topic, countering China's transnational repression, is one that we believe is very pressing.、Um, as we all may know, China is ruled by a fully authoritarian regime, where the rule of law, transparency, and government accountability are severely lacking. There are no free and fair elections, and there is no independence between the different branches of government. Fundamental human rights and civil liberties are not respected, and the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, cracks down on dissent in a very systematic and a very calculated way. The CCP's human rights abuses range from censorship to forced labor, concentration camps, arbitrary detentions, religious repression, educational interference. To cultural suppression, violent crackdowns on peaceful pro-democracy movements, and even genocide—the list of abuses goes on. And alarmingly, it has become increasingly clear that China's authoritarian policies are no longer just an internal matter inside China. The Chinese government goes to extreme lengths to silence criticism and instill fear among Chinese, Uyghur, Hong Konger, Tibetan. Taiwanese and religious communities abroad, and such transnational trans- transnational repression is a very common tactic used by authoritarian regimes globally, and thus the CCP's transnational repression is a threat to all democracies and requires immediate action and immediate attention from the international community.、Uh, for today's conversation, we're so grateful to be joined by young frontline activists. From the Hong Kong community, Tibetan community, and Uyghur community, to discuss the Chinese government's various methods of monitoring, of surveilling, and of intimidating dissidents abroad, we have Joey Xu, who is a Hong Kongese American human rights activist who played a key part in the 2019 protests in Hong Kong. We also have Tenzin Yangzum, who is a campaign manager of Students for Free Tibet (SFT). Which is a global grassroots chapter-based organization dedicated to advocating to advance freedom in Tibet, and we also have Zermatay Arkin, who is a Uyghur Canadian activist, and she is the program and advocacy manager of World Uyghur Congress. The World Uyghur Congress is an international umbrella organization dedicated to promoting Uyghur human rights. Joey Tenzin Zermatay, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Thank Jenny, you for having for us. Thanks, Thank Jenny.、You. Well, to kick off this discussion, the first question I have here is open to all the panelists here to answer.、Uh, the first question is: How would you define transnational repression?、Um, I guess we'll go alphabetical. Joey, would you like to go first? 
Sure. Again, thank you so much, Jenny, and then also the team at the Humanist Foundation for coordinating and making this important conversation happen. And thank you so much, Sumitai, and also Yansum for sharing the stage with us. So in short, I would say transnational repression is an act of um, governments reaching across borders in an attempt to silence and oppress dissidents, exiled uh, pro-democracy actors among the diaspora uh, through different tactics. And for the textbook definition, according to the FBI, any act of stalking, intimidation, or assault by a foreign government against an individual uh, here in the United States can be considered uh, an act of transnational repression locally here in the States. And it is also seen as an illegal activity that violates individual rights and freedom. And as I have said, it can happen in many, many forms, including stalking, harassment, assault, or even attempted, kill, uh, attempted kidnapping, asset freezing, and more. And to talk about the context of the People's Republic of China, the PRC's transnational repression campaign against uh, pro-democracy dissidents overseas, it also often occur in the forms of um, forcing or coercing the targeted individual to return to China, threatening or detaining uh, one, uh, the targeted individuals uh, on the ground family members or significant others, um, forcing them to return to China or to commit other uh, intended activities. And it also very often happen in the forms of um, online disinformation or defamation campaigns. And to talk about all these activities, we also have to note that it can be executed by not just um, state controlled or state affiliated agents, but then it can also occur under the cases of execution by coerced non-community members or community members or also extended um, branches of the PRC, including, for example, uh, in the case of Hong Kong, like the Hong Kong Economic and Trade Offices or around the world. And increasingly, we are also seeing non-state affiliated actors committing to what we, um, to, to, to acts of transnational repression. And then also increasingly, especially for the case of Uyghurs, which I believe Sir Matai can elaborate even, uh, even a bit more, that we are also seeing collaborative transnational repression tactics with coordinated efforts from two or more autocratic regimes, for example, between uh, the PRC government and also the Turkish uh, government, etc. Thank you, Joe. Zohar, Tenzin Zomachay, whoever would like to go next. Um, yeah, I think Joey has really, um, you know, defined the the term really perfectly. Um, but I think something that I would also add is that um, most often these governments, uh, these authoritarian governments are also using international bodies such as Interpol, for example. Um, in, in the case of Uyghurs, this is something that we've seen repeatedly uh, where the Chinese government has used Interpol red notice, um, you know, Okay, uh, frequently to target dissidents um, who are living abroad and to really try to block um, not only their advocacy efforts, but also their own personal uh, life, um, you know, whether because with an Interpol red notice, it really limits um, a lot of things in your personal and professional life because you're, um, you're always uh, stopped at the at borders and question, interrogated, detained, um, and then you're also limited in your capacity to to not only travel but also exchange money. So really these governments use the existing international systems to target actively um, dissidents, activists abroad, 
Um, and I think from the victim's perspective in this case, I would say, you know, for the Uyghur community, transnational repression is something that we live with on a daily basis, whether you're an activist or not, you are um, at risk of, for example, hostage diplomacy practices um, that are um, exerted on these uh, different families um, to basically threaten your relatives who are still living inside um, you know, East Turkestan, Tibet, Hong Kong, um, to really reach you so far. So for Uyghur, uh, Uyghurs um, and for victims in general, transnational repression means that you don't feel safe anywhere, wh wherever you are, even if you're living in democratic states um, in freedom. It means that there's always going to be a way for the Chinese government to get you or for authoritarian governments to get you. Thank you, Julian Zumerte. The Chinese government's long arm is truly alarming, and Tenzin, I'd love to hear your thoughts about how you define transnational repression as well. Yeah, thanks, Jenny, um, and everyone else for being here. I think my colleague, Dandor, um, puts it best. He calls it repression without borders. And this kind of happens when China is able to use their power and social standing, which you know, the international community is able to contribute and does so to harass and intimidate activists and groups. And, you know, actually any opposing voice, voice in general doesn't necessarily have to be an activist or a group. Um, and this especially comes at a time where China has increasingly strengthened their iron fist on Tibetans um, inside Tibet at a rate which we haven't seen in a very long time. They have total surveillance on Tibetans inside Tibet. And now they're also increasing their hand by continuing to build up their power overseas through intimidation tactics um, and more. And I think every Tibetan activist in exile has probably felt in one way or another a form of um, this transnational repression, whether it be um, really extreme measures or even just slight um, intimidation tactics. And actually, we've all, I think, uh, Joey Zimratai and I have all um, unfortunately had our fair share of um experiencing some forms of transnational repression um, together, unfortunately, as well. All of you have experienced transnational repression, and you guys aren't even inside China. This is why this is so incredibly alarming. I, I'm curious to learn more. How do these threats of transnational repression differ from those that are currently inside China's borders. What are the experiences of those in exile and those in the diaspora regarding transnational repression? I can begin first, maybe. So I think when inside of the borders of China or inside of um, the Chinese party controlled regions, we are seeing a, a lot of repression and also crackdown coming in direct forms of, uh, from, for example, police, um, for, for, for example, law enforcement, the police department, and also other government stakeholders inside of China and also CCP controlled regions. But then when it comes to transnational repression, we are seeing a lot of uh, manipulation of different international mechanisms, for example, uh, including what Sumer Tai just mentioned, the Interpol system, and then also a lot of other international organizations, mechanisms, and, so, and also systems. And when it comes to international, uh, and when it comes to transnational repression, we're also seeing a lot of the use of um, different coerced um, non-community members, community members, state-affiliated actors, and, and then also state-coerced actors um, enforcing and executing the transnational repression schemes against um, pro-democracy dissidents in exile through a lot of indirection, 
uh, through a lot of indirect forms, including, for example, family intimidation, uh, anonymous online uh, harassment, defamation, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say this is one of the most uh, significant features that we are recognizing uh, in terms of the differences of um, on the ground uh, repression and, and, and also currently uh, overseas transnational repression. Yeah, just to add on to what Joey has mentioned, I think we've seen this trend within all of our communities, um, and that's using the security of those still inside, you know, East Turkestan, Tibet, Hong Kong, China against us, whether it be the relatives we know, relatives we may not know, um, all of this using visa as a bait to get um, to, uh, information from people. I think that is all kind of um, attributes to the control and power that they're able to seek um, because they're ultimately hosting, uh, holding these people hostage. And so, you know, we would never do anything that would put these people um, necessarily at risk. So that creates a lot of, um, you know, difficult spaces to navigate in exile. Yeah, I think um, this, you know, the Chinese government has successfully, um, you know, led these efforts uh, for many years. Uh, transnational repression is nothing new. It existed in the 90s. It existed, you know, before this. Uh, but I think in the in the recent years, what we've seen is that they have doubled down on their efforts to, um, I guess, uh, aggressively um, target uh, this, uh, families um, outside of, you know, dissidents and activists, uh, just regular families, regular people um, who are living abroad using, you know, their relatives who are still living inside. So that connection, I think, has really been uh, useful to the government. Um, and I think for many, many years, I think the river community and the diaspora have stayed silent, or many people have stayed silent in, in the diaspora community because of that fear of uh, retaliation against their relatives, uh, with you know, with that fear of not uh, being able to receive a visa to visit family. But what's interesting in our case is that after you know, in the past few years, we've seen with the the emergence of the camps and you know the crimes against humanity, the genocide. We've what the government has proven is that actually, whether you're you're an activist or not, if you speak up or not you're actually, your silence is not going to protect you. Um, and I think in our case, um, that was a bit liberating because then people um, realized that they could actually do something. They could speak up uh, because whether they did it or not, that wouldn't necessarily protect their family. So I think this, this is also something um, interesting that we have observed um, in the past, past few years. Hmm. Thank you. These these are good observations, and thank you all so much for sharing your insights. I I think Zumerte, what you mentioned that transnational repression is definitely something that is not new. Um, Zumerte, I actually have a question. I wanted to expand on what you mentioned earlier about Interpol Red Notice, and I know that the World Weaker Congress does a lot of work in the UN. How has the Chinese government suppressed? international response on its own human rights abuses abroad and to the Uyghur people and to Tibetans and Hong Kongers, etc. Um, yeah, so the, in the past few years, there's been, um, you know, increased awareness about the issue and there's been increased condemnation by the international um, community, including states, uh, you know, international bodies like the UN, EU institutions. Um, but 
despite that, China still to this day denies that these, uh, you know, crimes uh, against humanity, these these uh, atrocity crimes are not taking place in the region. Um, they are still defending their policy, genocidal policies, in the name of the right to development, which they're trying to, you know, promote and defend at the UN, um, especially with the support of global South countries. Um, so it's become this kind of, uh, you know, global North versus the global South values. Um, and China is leading uh, the global South countries with these values of, you know, right to development, right to uh, poverty alleviation, uh, right to uh, exchange and, and, you know, all of these values have become now universal values in the eyes of China. So until this day, at the UN or elsewhere, the Chinese government is still defending these policies in, in the names of these in the name of the, of these values, and they're still uh, basically proclaiming that there is ethnic harmony, uh, unity in the region in China overall, um, and yet yeah, just denying the facts. Joey or Tenson, would you like to add on with anything? Uh, no, I'm all set. Thanks. I know there's been a lot of discussion in recent years about China's use of AI, of technology. Uh, how is the Chinese government using this technological prowess to advance its transnational repression efforts? I think most commonly we have um, witnessed a lot of um, online, very, very apparently orchestrated um, by the Chinese party, the online disinformation and, 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 and then also defamation campaigns. We are also seeing a lot of these uh, harassments and also personal attacks um, that are clearly driven by the PRC government against pro-democracy dissidents, against diaspora communities. And I'm sure that um, both me, Sumratai, and also Yansum here experienced to a certain extent that kind of harassment coming from uh, state-affiliated um, actors or state-influenced actors um, online on platforms like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and, 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 then a lot, and then also a lot more. And then with the advancement and popularity that we are seeing with um, platforms like TikTok and then also Weibo, we are seeing a lot of these um, propaganda and disinformation campaigns that are systematically coming out from PRC-related sources uh, against our diaspora communities. And not to mention that with the technological advancement um, uh, of these platforms and also development of China's uh, influence in these areas, we're also seeing that they have been exporting uh, these disinformation in regards to our pro-democracy campaigns, etc. And of course, we are seeing a increasing level of surveillance against not just um, high profile pro-democracy dissidents who are currently in exile, but then against our diaspora communities as a whole with, um, with communication tools like WeChat and also a lot more. So I think all these are very clear reflections of the, of the PRC government's uh, use of technological powers to uh, export the transnational repression against our communities. Yeah, and to add on to that as well, um, especially about TikTok and also um, there are huge tech giants that are like Thermo Fisher who are being complicit um, and 
ultimately ignoring and helping fuel the CCP's um, agenda of building the largest police database in the entire world where, you know, they'll have access and be able to help map out exactly who is related to who in the diaspora, which is as dangerous as it sounds. Um, and I think there also needs to be a more structured system of reports of incidents so that we can have people report these incidents in a private and, of course, most importantly, in a safe manner. Um, I know even just as a quick example, my younger sister goes to university in Massachusetts and she started up a local SFT chapter with a couple of her friends. Um, and they had a fair day where they had um, like free Tibet stickers and posters and some Chinese student dressed in a massive like uh, dragon came over and started dancing and knocked around the entire um, billboard and table. And that left them, my sister and her friends, all like extremely startled. And that's just one small example of something like that happening in, you know, in our own um, cities, in our own states. And I think that can sometimes really demotivate or scare like young Tibetans, Uyghurs, Hong Kongers into thinking twice before they're vocal or active, which would be a huge disservice to all of our communities and movements. So, you know, we really need to find a way to respond to these incidents better and also provide uh, more support when this does happen to our own community members. Yeah, and if I may, I think when it comes to talking about um, the Chinese Party's um, online disinformation and defamation campaign against our diaspora community members, I think a lot of times when we hear that, we underestimate the level of attack and also harassment that is happening. So I would just say that, so for example, when we hear about these um, online disinformation and defamation campaigns, we might think that it might just be a few messages coming to us on Twitter. Um, but then I would say the level and then also the scope of these campaigns are really so sophisticated that it's really beyond our imagination. So I would just use the case of um, an Australian, a, a Chinese Australian journalist, Vicky Xu, as an example. So some of us, some of our listeners here might be aware of the case that happened against uh, Vicky. Uh, I would say it was um, a year or a little more than a year ago. So because of Vicky's report and also very in-depth research into the Uyghur force labor, she was targeted by the Chinese state and they launched a full-on defamation and slander campaign against her where she had her image um, being photoshopped with, uh, uh, with the use of AI technology on some, um, on some, uh, on some uh, videos, uh, accusing her of, uh, of a very complicated uh, sexual life, etc. And then they have also uh, made use of the AI technology to do very similar campaigns against a few other uh, journalists of, China, uh, of Han Chinese um, uh, dissident who have been also reporting on the Uyghur genocide, on the uh, on the CCP's colonization of Tibet, and also the Hong Kong's pro democracy movement. And the scope that we are talking about is not just a few uh, comments on Twitter or a few comments coming in on Instagram or Facebook. It was really a full on campaign where you all of a sudden you see Vicky's name trending on Twitter on platforms like Weibo overnight, and you see all these information about her and all these um, fake generated videos of her uh, spreading on Twitter in a unimaginable speed. So I think when we talk about these um, online harassment attacks and defamation campaigns and disinformation, 
information campaigns, we really need to note the scope of these campaigns and understand that um, understand that the scope is really way beyond our imagination. If I can just quickly add to that is also the defamation campaigns that are, um, you know, led by the Chinese government officials. Um, so, for example, we have incidents of government officials at a high level, including spokesperson of the foreign ministry or the government uh, defaming camp survivors. We were Kazakh, uh, Kazakh um, camp survivors and basically publishing their private confidential medical record with the, to the international community. So these instances are very serious and I think there's just, there hasn't been any appropriate response uh, by the international community. This includes the UN, you know, women, uh, UN uh, bodies. And so I think this is something that we have to understand as Joey said, um, in order to uh, be able to give appropriate responses. Thank you. Yeah, at the Human Rights Foundation, we, we fully understand and recognize how, how alarming transnational repression is. And we also know that dictators learn from each other. I'm curious to learn and see if you guys have noticed if other dictatorships or other authoritarian regimes are taking notes and essentially learning from the CCP with their usage of transnational repression. I think what, have, what we've observed at the World of Congress is that, um, so the Interpol Red Notice has been, um, you know, misused by China, but that also uh, extends to many, many other governments, including Iran, Pakistan, uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE. So all of these authoritarian governments have used Interpol, uh, you know, to their advantage, um, to to silence activists, to silence uh, dissidents who are living abroad and who are advocating for their rights, for the rights of their people and their communities. So this practice has been, uh, I suppose, learned, um, you know, they've learned this practice from each other. Um, so yeah, definitely this is one thing that, I've, uh, that we have observed. Yeah, just adding on to what Sumertai already mentioned very, very quickly, I think we are definitely seeing a replicated pattern between uh, the different autocratic regimes' tactics of transnational repression. We see that in the PRC's context, we have been witnessing a lot of um, use of hostage diplomacy, the threatening and coercing of targeted individuals to return to China, the, um, the tactic of hosting uh, of holding their family members and significant members uh, back home hostage and forcing them to do uh, to to take actions that the PRC wanted them to take in in return of their family members' safety. And we also see that, for example, for the case of PRC, we see that the uh, attempt the the kidnapping of uh, former bookseller Gui Minhai, and we see very similar tactics employed by the Iranian regime uh, in regards to the attempted kidnapping and assassination of the of the very prominent uh, activist and journalist Masi. And then we are seeing a lot of other uh, autocratic regimes, as Sumatai have mentioned, including Saudi Arabia, uh, Belarus, Turkey, etc., employing very similar tactics against um, dissidents and opposition voices who are currently in exile, and then also um, and then also organizing all these pro-democracy movements overseas. And we actually see that um, 
I think it was in the report uh, released by Freedom House very recently, we see that uh, the top 10 countries of the, the top 10 origin countries of transnational repressions are namely um, ch including China, Belarus, Iran, Turkey, uh, Russia, etc. And we see that from all the cases um, that are in relation to all these autocratic regimes, we see very similar patterns of uh, spying, harassment, assault, um, direct and also indirect intimidation, and then also attempted kidnapping, assassination, et cetera, et cetera. So we are definitely seeing a pattern of replication between all these autocratic regimes. And to understand um, what kinds of responses and also policies would be the best to be put into place in response to not just the PRC's um, transnational repression against Hong Kongers, Uyghurs, Tibetans, and Chinese dissidents. We definitely need to understand uh, what are the similarities between all these transnational repression tactics um, deployed by uh, also other autocratic regimes as well. So I believe legislation was recently introduced in the United States Senate to discuss the issue of transnational repression. Joey and Tenzin, since the two of you are based in the U.S., can you please tell us a little bit more about this bill? Um, yeah, I'm not, uh, maybe Joey can explain the bill more, but I'm not all too familiar with it, but I was at the um, CECC hearing um, in D.C. a couple of weeks ago, and um, we had a couple of great um, panelists, um, including Tendor, who spoke about recommendations he had requested Congress and the administration to set up a hotline um, where people can sort of report incidents of transnational repression by Beijing. And so um, the congressman um, was able to respond and said that is actually something that they've been setting up. And so um, that's really great news. And so we just kind of want to make sure that they're taking it as seriously and understanding that everyone who is submitting these reports are at great risk and of being targeted. Um, by Beijing's apparatus of transnational repression. And so um, that was what I wanted to mention about that. Sure. So adding on to what Yansam has mentioned, so in regards to legislative efforts introduced by the United States Congress, so earlier this year, uh, Virginia Senators Tim Kaine and Mark Warner wrote to the Attorney General of Virginia and then also the Secretary of State, uh, Anthony Blinken, urging stronger actions from the administration, the executive branch, to deter the PRC's transnational repression against um, Uyghur American families here in Virginia. And they have named specifically the cases of um, Rishan Abbas and then also Nuri Turkle. Um, they have um, named their case and urged uh, stronger actions um, and, and also response from the administration. And very early and very, urgent, uh, very recently, uh, earlier this month on March 16th, uh, we also saw that a coalition of bipartisan senators, including Senator Jeff Merkley, Marco Rubio, uh, Ben Cardin, and more, they have co-introduced the Transnational Repression Policy Act. Uh, so basically, the act uh, aims to establish U.S. policy in holding foreign governments, uh, namely the PRC, accountable to acts of transnational repression against individuals here in the United States. And that includes both individuals who are seeking refuge here, and then, of course, U.S. citizens in the country and U.S. citizens overseas. And they also made it very clear that they, uh, through the legislation, they also wanted to ensure that the uh, Interpol mechanism, which was mentioned by Sumitai, that has been exploited by not just the PRC, but then also a lot of other autocratic regimes that um, 
that they wanted to ensure that the mechanism will no longer be exploited by these autocratic regimes to target or extradite, uh, or extradite dissidents, including Uyghurs, Tibetans, Hong Kongers, and then also, of course, other pro-democracy dissidents who face the uh, long arms of autocratic regimes uh, elsewhere. So that is uh, so that is basically the um, the the fundamental aim of the legislation. And aside from that, we are also seeing uh, a lot of legislative efforts coming from different parts of the legislative branch here in the United States. Uh, we saw that the Select Committee uh, on the Chinese Party, which was fairly recently established, they have been organizing hearings and also public events, uh, shining a light on the, uh, on the increasing transnational repression here in the United States. We're also seeing a continuous effort from the uh, from the Congressional Executive Committee on China. Uh, they have been um, continuously soliciting and then also documenting testimonials and then also evidence presented by different civil society organizations and actors in regards to transnational repression uh, cases happening on the American soil. Yeah, and just to add on to that as well, um, I think one of the really most shocking and alarming things that came out within the last year was actually a um, Tibetan New York, New York Police Department officer who was um, spying for the Chinese government and using, you know, the power of his position and ranks to manipulate the leaders of our community here in New York. And um, I think that was kind of one of the reasons why we saw in real time, you know, what was happening in our communities, how much power they were uh, wielding. And I think that has a lot to do with kind of tracing back money and figuring out how exactly Chinese government is funding institutions, whether it be police stations that we've seen and heard a lot about the overseas police stations. We all know about um, the Confucius Institutes and how they are funded entirely by um, Hanban and the education um, you know, system in a part of the CCP. And so these are all, you know, extremely, these are things that we know, but I think we have to be able to put things together, especially within, uh, across all of our communities. It's not just a oh, a Tibetan issue, this police officer is a Tibetan issue, and solely a Tibetan issue, it's, you know, this police officer could have been an Uyghur person, they could have been um, a Hong Konger, they could have been a Chinese person um, infiltrating their communities. And so the police officer did have a lot of interactions with our community leaders here, our NGOs here, and you know, overall can have a really lasting impact on what kind of work the communities are doing and trying to depoliticize our movements I think that adds to why the bill was um, introduced and so important um, here, at least uh, in the U.S. So in addition to legislation or creating a hotline or creating safe reporting mechanisms, what do you think democratic governments and concerned global citizens should do in response to best protect human rights and counter such transnational repression? This question is for all of you, whoever would like to share first. Um, yeah, I think the, the issue of transnational repression um, has not been talked about enough. Um, I think it, it's I think government, some governments and some uh, stakeholders are starting to understand what it, it really is and what it means to our communities living in exile um, and how it can impact us in these countries. And I think they've started to realize that it has bigger consequences beyond our community because this also has an impact and, you know, it's directly related to the country's security priorities, to, you know, their domestic affairs, because a, a, 
a country, a sovereign country is interfering in another sovereign country's internal affairs by spying on their um, you know, citizens, uh, by um, trying to threaten them. So I think this issue is now on slowly being put on the global agenda, but I think um, the first thing to do is to listen to the community, um, you know, communities that are affected by this practice, um, what they need, um, what kind of support they need, what are some of the things that, you know, uh, they're facing, and really to, to, I think, understand the issue entirely, to understand how they're expected to help in this matter, and um, the resources that they can make available to these communities. So I think this, these three um, aspects have to be um, talked about. And this is something that we always recommend when we meet with governments um, is, you know, they have to take action. They, you know, someone, I think uh, Tenzin mentioned um, uh, the hotline. This is something that's very concrete that governments can do uh, because one of the, uh, I think, one of the most common frustrations that um, people in our communities have faced or have felt is when they they have um, they have been threatened by a government agent uh, directly or indirectly, or they've uh, you know faced uh, hostage diplomacy or something. They just don't know where to go. They don't know who to call. And if you look at a lot of the interviews. Um, you know, of the Uyghurs, uh, live, you know, who have lived that experience, they just always said the same thing, which is we don't bother calling the police because they don't know, like, they won't help and they don't know how to help. So I think really to first, for the government itself to understand this issue, but also the different government agencies. So down to the police, down to the local authorities to understand what it really means and all of the direct and indirect consequences that it can have um, to on our communities. Uh, yeah, I can um, go next. I, I think it's important to note that, you know, we as our communities don't have the millions of dollars that China is um, passed to use against us. We just have ourselves and our work. And so, as Umatai was saying, it's so important to listen to the uh, impacted community members, whether it be the concentration camp survivors um, that I've met, the human rights defenders like Golochik Man, Naung Sender, who've all um, experienced, um, you know, such brutal and heinous things um, inside prison walls inside Tibet and East, East Turkestan. They're actually the people who have continued to nonstop protest um, every day, every night. We had a protest in D.C. and we needed um, people to sleep over. And the first people who volunteered were actually um two concentration camp survivors based in Virginia, based in D.C., who said, you know, I will be here. I will stay as long as you guys want me to. They're the people, you know, we have Nong Sang from uh, Massachusetts who goes to Tibet Lobby Day every year just so she can um, talk to congressmen and congresswomen and uh, our representatives about the uh, horrible abuses that she has endured. And so these are the people's stories we have to listen to and amplify. And I think it's been around... Um, it's been over 24 years now that Tibetans have been experiencing forms of transnational repression. Um, even just myself being born in India and exiled and raised in the U.S., I've never seen Tibet, and I don't think I will in this lifetime until Tibet is free. And this is probably the case for most um, Tibetan Americans. And I even have fr- I know this because I have friends who 
have applied for countless visas for t- uh, to go to Tibet, whether it be through the universities, um, through so many different channels, but they've all been rejected or they've gone once in their life. And then since they've come back and been semi, like, semi-active, like they've not been able to go back to visit their families anymore. And so we know that they're imprisoning Uyghurs and Congos and Tibetans to the point where um, they don't know when they'll ever see anything past a prison cell. And so everyone is so scared of the Chinese government, implications that they can have on themselves, their families, their countries. And it's unfortunately, they're unable to see the bigger picture. Um, but it started somewhere. It started with Tibetans and Uyghurs and Chinese people themselves and Hong Kongers. And I wonder sometimes what other proof is the rest of the world waiting on before they start to act. Yeah, I 100% echo to what Yang and Mr. Matai have mentioned. I think it's really important that we really need to encourage government, democracies, and then also other stakeholders in a society to really understand and then also to document the scope and also the seriousness of the PRC transnational repression against our communities. As I have mentioned before, whenever we talk about transnational repression against our community, our, um, our community members, very often we will be dismissed and be told that um, the repression against us, the harassment, the attacks against us are not that serious and that um, it is not to a point where it deserves uh, government attention or attention yet. So to that, we really need to understand that it is not just a random sort of dispute that we're talking about. What we are talking about right now is that we are facing the transnational repression from a very, very wealthy and powerful regime um, that they are orchestrating all of these very sophisticated, comprehensive uh, scheme against our communities that involves so many stakeholders, including not just the state affiliated or the state uh, controlled ones, but then also the coerced individuals, or organizations that are taking advantages or money from the Chinese party, from the PRC government, and making use of their social status, making use of their connections, their networks, and then their influences in this community, in the society, um, against our community members. So I think, first and foremost, we really need to establish the fundamental uh, and then also understanding in regards to the scope and also the seriousness of the PRC's repression against our communities. And then secondly, as Sumatai has mentioned, um, rightfully, we really need to establish um, dedicated units, departments, and then also task forces to tackle the cases of, of transnational repression. Because as all of us have mentioned, this is not just a random singular attack or harassment against one single community member. It is a sophisticated, organized, and very well thought scheme that is uh, that involves so many stakeholders against um, our communities as a whole. It was not just one or two high-profile pro-democracy activists that is being targeted under this transnational repression scheme. It was all of our community members who are, who are currently in exile, who are pro-democracy, who are not even very, very politically active that are targeted under this scheme. So we really need a dedicated task force and dedicated resources to help us um, tackle the issue right now that we are facing through means of uh, law enforcement, through means of public education, and through means of legislative efforts. And I think, last but not least, we also need to ensure uh, the pro. Uh, we also need to ensure that we are providing sufficient uh, legal protection to 
to victims under transnational repression. For so long, we have been hearing our community members say to us that we have been experiencing the PRC's uh, repression against us, but then we are too afraid to report, first of all, because we know that it might not uh, really receive the attention that it deserves from uh, the governmental department, from the law enforcement. And secondly, because a lot of these community members are currently uh, here in the United States or elsewhere in other democracies without a permanent legal status. And that because they do not want to risk their, they do not want to put themselves at the risk of being deported back to China, to other CCP controlled regions that they decided to um, to just ignore and not to report these cases to law enforcement and other governmental organizations and so on and so forth. So I think to make sure that these victims are ensured and guaranteed a, a, a permanent status in these democracies is very, very crucial uh, as the first step um, to bringing attention to the issue. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joey. Thank you, Tenzin. Thank you, Zimrite. That's all the time we have for today. But before we wrap up, I wanted to give you guys the space and time to share if you have any final messages or any final call to actions that you'd like to share with all of us tuning in today. Yeah, um, I can go first. I also just wanted to bring up um, the reports that have come out recently against um, Tibetans and Uyghurs and the mass-forced DNA collection. I think this is sort of the new um, frontier of repression that is happening where they're able to, again, we mentioned a lot today in today's discussion about family mapping and figuring out who's related to who and kind of having that wager over what we're doing actively in exile. And I think that is a really alarming new tactic that the Chinese government is um, kind of displaying and using Tibetans and Uyghurs and Chinese people as guinea pigs in their massive um, uh, experiment. And um, there are companies that are complicit in this that include um, U.S. companies like Thermo Fisher. And I think that's important to realize like what partners are working alongside the CCP, whether they're being, um, you know, whether they're, they're being complicit or being ignorant. It's still um, them aiding and abetting in the genocide of our people. Um, but at the end of the day, we all know that the Chinese government will never win the battle for the hearts and minds of the Tibetan, Uyghur, and Hong Kong people, and that we cannot let them take away from the fact that the CCP lacks legitimacy in ruling our people, our nation, and that our communities are all linked, and those, for as long as those inside um, continue to resist, um, so will we, and we'll continue to amplify their voices and stand in solidarity with them. I 100% agree with, uh, with, with Yangon as well. Um, and I think one thing that I would like to, um, in terms of like best practice, I think one thing is clear is that silence is not a protection. Um, and I would really encourage anyone um, experiencing transnational, any form of uh, forms of transnational repression to come forward. Um, it can be done anonymously if you know, there are real uh, consequences and, and fears. Um, but I think silence um, cannot be you know, protection and I think um, we have experiences a lot in the Uyghur community where people have just ignored this or didn't report it but I think even if it doesn't actually lead to anything concrete it is important that it, it enters a, the record so it it is there um, written uh, as a written con concrete evidence uh, because then that contributes to the documentation effort that contributes to the raising awareness efforts um, and this also applies at the UN if you are 
uh, you know, facing these forms by any authoritarian um, country, authoritarian governments at the UN specifically. There are uh, avenues that are available to civil society uh, organizations and, and, um, and activists uh, who are experiencing some sort of uh, retaliation at the UN. There are avenues available for them to report it to the relevant bodies and um, actions to be taken. So I think um, I would really encourage anyone to really come forward anonymously or, or publicly. I fully echo to what Sumitai had mentioned in regards to the fact that silence is not going to protect us from the CCP's long arms and, and not going to protect us from their transnational repression in our own host countries. And I think we have mentioned, we have talked about how these autocratic regimes, including the CCP and so many others like Belarus, Russia, and also um, many, many other regimes, including like Iran, et cetera, are collaborating with each other, are learning from each other and, rep and replicating all these tactics of transnational repression against opposition voices, not just here in the States, in Canada, in UK, but also in places like um, Taiwan and so many other countries. So I think it's really important that we come forward, we put our experiences, our uh, uh, our experiences into the records and that we come forward and make use of these experiences to push for our government to continue to unite bipartisan efforts in our own countries from the different branches of our governments and then also to take into account advice and then also uh, and then also suggestions from different civil society actors and especially those who have experienced uh, the PRC and other regimes transnational repressions uh, firsthand to formulate a, a more extensive uh, whole of government approach and then also to collaborate with multilateral partners including uh, democracies including international organizations to tackle the PRC's very very sophisticated scheme of repression and also to ensure that in the future international mechanisms for example including the Interpol mechanism is not going to be exploited as a tool uh, for the PRC and, uh, and other autocratic regimes to further exercise their repression uh, against our diaspora community members and dissidents in Excel. Thank you. Thank you so much. I learned so much this conversation, and I'm sure our audience did too. For everyone tuning here today, HRF will be adapting this conversation in the coming weeks to be an episode in our Dissidents and Dictators podcast series, which is available to all listeners via Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Apple Podcasts. So you will be able to listen to this again and refer back to the tools and knowledge that we learned today from Joey Tenzin and Zumite. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to learn more, please follow HRF. Please follow all of our speakers here today, as well as their respective organizations, Students for Free Tibet, that is SFT. Their handle is at SFTHQ. Please also follow World Uyghur Congress. Their Twitter handle is at Uyghur Congress. Once again, thank you all so much. See you next time. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jenny and HRF.